what if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Coming up on The Cost of Living. I said, okay, let me understand this. If we don't agree to finance the car, you won't sell us the car. We will walk out of here and you will lose a sale. And he said, yes. Tammy Hussey wanted to buy a car. She had the money, offered to pay cash, and that is when her problems started. Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrude. Welcome to The Cost of Living. Imagine this. You walk into a car dealership, find a vehicle you like, you have the money to buy it outright, but what if the dealership doesn't want your cash? Also today, the Michelin Guide is a stamp of approval for the world's best chefs. It's now handing out its coveted stars in Canada, So what's that worth to a restaurant? And later in the show, a conversation with Middle East expert Gregory Brew about the war in Israel and what it could mean for the global economy. Back in the Old West, they had a saying, cash on the barrel head. You're in the general store, you need flour, castor oil, maybe some penny candy. You slap that cash money on top of the barrel, take the goods. The storekeeper didn't want a cowboy skipping out on the bill. Credit was for suckers. But now, Danielle Nerman, it's 2023, and cash may no longer be king? Not if you're in the market for a car, Paul. What, car dealerships don't want our money? Not all of them, and Tammy Hussey learned that this summer. She was trying to help her 84-year-old father buy a used Jeep. They test drove one in Toronto, and her dad fell in love with it. He couldn't wait to drive it home. And he had the money in his bank account, but... We were told we could not purchase the car for 100% cash. And not cash in a, in a briefcase, but my dad was going to do a wire transfer to pay for the car. And that was absolutely turned down. The salesperson was firm. If they wanted the car, they had to take out a loan. I said, OK, let me understand this. If we don't agree to finance the car, you won't sell us the car. We will walk out of here and you will lose a sale. And he said, yes. And again, I pushed back on that and I said, are you serious? Is this really happening? Because I bought a lot of cars in my life. I've never encountered this. And he basically said fairly abruptly, look, if you have no interest in financing this car, please leave. Please leave. Right? Kind of harsh. But this is what's known as forced financing. Sherry Primack runs a nonprofit called Car Help Canada. It's a consumer watchdog group. And a couple of years ago, Primac had never heard of forced financing. 
But in the last 18 months, he's received about 100 complaints about it. And forced financing is exactly what it sounds like, Paul. A sales tactic where dealerships will only sell you a car if you agree to finance it. So what's the issue with paying with cash? Well, in the car business, cash is good, but credit is better. Because when you take out a car loan, the dealer gets a commission from the lender. If you pay cash, it doesn't. The dealership makes more money when you finance. Uh, So it's in their best interest for you to do so. Car dealers call this money a reserve, but Primac calls it a kickback. What kind of money are we talking about here? Well, that depends. I mean, the more you borrow and the higher the interest is on the loan, the larger the commission. I spoke to a salesperson who works at a dealership in Calgary, and he said the money they get from lenders on financing can range anywhere from 150 to 2000 bucks. Well, if they're getting that on every single car, every single sale, that starts to add up. Financing is good business for car dealerships. It's a reliable revenue stream, and car dealerships, they need that right now. I mean, you remember how hard it was to buy a car during the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, drive by and see a lot of empty lots. And Primax says Canada still has a shortage of used and new vehicles, and fewer cars mean fewer sales. Yeah, so in in the past, say a dealership was receiving 100 units per month. During this car shortage, they might have only been receiving 30 or 40 units per month. So they're trying to make more profit, more money per unit that they sell because they are selling fewer cars than they were in the past. So they have fewer cars to sell, but a lot of customers coming in the door that still want to buy those cars. Exactly. I talked to Keith McDougall about this. He's a former car salesman. He's worked for Honda, Ford, and Volkswagen. He says before the pandemic, the market for vehicles was more balanced. So car dealerships, they just treated these financing commissions like a bonus. It was much less of a big deal back when I was selling cars because it didn't really matter if you wanted to pay cash or you wanted to finance The dealer was pretty happy to sell the car, make a couple of dollars and get it off the lot. What's happening now seems to be that there's so much demand for these cars that the dealer really isn't so inclined to make any given deal work because they know there'll be a new one in the door the next day. So what I'm hearing here is is car dealerships kind of in the uh, driver's seat. (laughs) Hey-oh. No, but they have a lot of customers, not a lot of cars, so they can call the shots. Yeah. And another thing dealerships do to get people to finance, they just charge them more when they want to pay cash. Like they'd say this car is 22000 if you pay cash, but you finance it, we'll give it to you for 20000 Exactly. Now, if you go on AutoTrader or right onto a dealership's website, you'll see different prices advertised for cash and financing. And financing is typically the better deal. So dealerships, they have a lot of different moves. And, you know, if we go back to Keith, a few months ago, he was actually looking to buy a used car and he had 15 grand, like ready for a down payment. But the dealer wanted him to put down less cash and take out a bigger loan than he needed. He refused and they turned him away. They did not care one bit about losing the sale. They were much more inclined to stick to their guns than to even consider doing it at the offer I presented. I mean, the irony here is that he's a former car salesman. (laughs) But what about the legality of all this? Can a dealership actually insist that you finance instead of using cash? 
They can. The Federal Competition Act calls this practice tide selling. That's when obtaining one product, in this case your car, is tied to obtaining another product, a loan. Tide selling doesn't break any rules, and there's no law in Canada that says a business has to accept cash. Just like some retailers don't take credit cards, a car dealership can say, we don't take cash. Okay, but what if you want to pay cash, but they say, no, 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 you have to finance. Do you have any options? So I reached out to every consumer affairs office in Canada, and most of them had the same advice. If you don't like the deal, walk away. There are car dealerships out there that accept cash payments, so shop around. Okay, but what if you wanted to be like a sneaky sneakerson and do the <laughs> financing, then turn around and pay it off the next day? Well, you could. Most car loans are open, so you can pay them off at any time. But sometimes you can be charged a fee for paying off your car loan early. And why is that? So according to another consumer watchdog, the Automobile Protection Association, If you pay off your car loan too soon, dealerships lose their commission. Lenders claw it back. So charging a penalty is how some dealerships are recouping lost profit. But that's not all you have to watch out for, Paul. What else is there? There are more fees. You remember Tammy Hussey, who was helping her dad buy a car? Well, he decided he wanted that Jeep. He was prepared to finance it. So Tammy took him back to the dealership. They ran a credit check. And then they said, you've been approved for an eight-year term loan for the car. Again, my dad is 84 years old. So I started laughing. He said, okay, uh, I don't think he needs an eight-year term. Uh, He'll be 92 and that gets paid off, you know. (laughs) All right. So what happened? Well, the dealership wanted to charge him 600 bucks to process the paperwork to finance the car. So an extra $600 for financing he didn't even really need? Yeah, he didn't buy the Jeep. All right, no Jeep for dad. Thanks, Danielle. You're welcome. Remember getting a gold star on your homework? That felt pretty good. Well, what if the whole world could see that stamp of approval? The stars are about to come out. Receiving a Michelin star puts a restaurant in exclusive group. The <clears throat> Michelin Guide, the fancy foodie restaurant guidebook. It started publishing back in 1900, but only came to Canada last year. Of the world's 3,000 Michelin star restaurants, we now have more than 20. Our producer Ellis Cho went to one of them to find out what that little star means for business. Hi, welcome to Burdock & Co. Thank it's you. Good to be here. Thank you. We're excited to be here. Andrea Carlson welcomes her first customers of the evening. She's the chef and owner of Burdock & Co., a small Vancouver restaurant that seats around 30 people. It serves up menus based on local seasonal ingredients. You know, maybe one week we've got green fennel seed and the next, uh, you know, the week prior we had um, sulfur yellow fennel flowers. And they each have a- Andrea is no stranger to great reviews, but one year ago, she landed the mother of all restaurant awards, a Michelin star. And it was just an incredible, like wow moment like um you know my manager started crying and there was a lot of emotions and i think it was just 
The Michelin Guide is a great marketing tool for restaurants. But when it first came out, it was more about selling tires. It might be the first hospitality restaurant tool designed uh, in the modern age to really promote restaurants as a result of trying to sell tires. Royce Schwinn is the head of Destination Vancouver. So how better to sell tires than to get people to drive and to send them to a location in a restaurant? And as a result of decades of that, it has turned into its own global phenomenon. Michelin stars are doled out by anonymous reviewers. They judge restaurants based on five criteria. It focuses on the chef's personality coming through the food, is the consistency of the delivery, it is the combinations of flavors and presentation. That's really what it's about. Restaurants get one, two, or very rarely three stars. Andrea Carlson got one. But that one star was enough to light up her restaurant. So yeah, the Michelin uh, star really brought in a ton of business uh, in Octo- late October of last year, and it hasn't stopped. So a lot of people who live in Vancouver is like, I've never heard of you. You've been here for 10 years. How have, how have I never heard of you? Before the Michelin star, Andrea was busy on weekends. Now, she's busy every night. But the Michelin Guide isn't without controversy. Some critics have called it biased and elitist. So, so Michelin, again, has a, a little bit of, of pomp to it, a little bit of stuffiness, being that old French brand. Bruce McAdams teaches at the School of Hospitality, Food and Tourism at the University of Guelph. He says a Michelin star can boost business, but it also raises expectations. And that can put a lot of pressure on restaurant owners. Um, there have been chefs and, and owners of restaurants that have given their stars back and said, we don't want to be part of the program anymore because of the additional stress that it adds. Because once you receive a star, there's no guarantee you'll keep it. Michelin updates its guide every year. And it just handed out this year's batch a few weeks ago. Burdock and Co. Andrea Carlson of Burdock & Co. gets to keep her Michelin star. So elated, honestly, so happy to retain that As star. for the pressure? I think that when you get into the two and three star levels, that's when people are under tremendous pressure. Um, we're at the one star level, so it feels uh, manageable. <laughs> Until next year. For The Cost of Living, I'm Ellis Cho. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. On next week's show... Air Canada and WestJet are cutting routes across the country. 
Some frequent flyers say this is not cool. Like, say you're trying to fly from Saskatoon to Calgary. It's not that easy to book a flight. Lots of times we tried to book a flight and you can't get a flight. And then also the cost. It, it's, it can be an extremely high cost. Um, you know, I, I, I myself have seen as high as $1,000 two ways. Uh, some of my friends, and I, you know, I'm just telling you what I've been told, they've seen $1,100 one way. Um, you know, on, on short notice. And, 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 and lots of times you, you can't even get a flight. Air Canada and WestJet say pulling back to home turf, Air Canada in the east, WestJet in the west, is just a business decision. Others argue they're splitting up the country between them and they want the Competition Bureau to step in. That's next week. Just more than a week has passed since the attacks on Israel by Hamas. What's happening to people on the ground in Gaza and Israel is obviously what matters most. But the region is also a critical pillar for the global economy. Any conflict there, let alone at the scale of what's going on now, could send ripples around the world. Gregory Brew is an author and analyst at the Eurasia Group, a global risk consultancy based in New York. His latest book is The Struggle for Iran – Oil, Autocracy, and the Cold War. Greg, hello. Hi, Paul. When you look at what's happened with with markets, whether it's oil, stocks, currencies, what do you make of the reaction so far? So there was an initial reaction for oil markets specifically. I mean, oil, which uh, dropped last week pretty significantly from around 88, 89 to down to $84 a barrel. That was the Brent benchmark. On Monday, in the aftermath of the Hamas attack against Israel, uh, the oil prices jumped back up. So oil markets are responding in a pretty volatile way to the violence in uh, in Israel and Gaza. This aligns with what we've seen in the past. Um, so the response we've seen on the oil market specifically uh, is fairly typical um, when crises like this emerge. Other commodities, broader market impact so far has been pretty minimal. Now, now, why is that? When you think of this muted reaction that we've seen from, from most markets, uh, there seems to be this disconnect between what's happening on the ground, which is obviously so grave and so tragic, and as you say, markets taking it in stride. Yeah, I mean, the answer is, uh, is a little bit unfortunate. Um, the fact is, is that most markets uh, kind of take violence in the Middle East and bake it into their forecasts. I mean, this isn't the first time we've seen a blow up uh, between Israel and uh, the Palestinian territories. This is the, you know, this is the third or fourth uh, crisis between Israel and Gaza in the last five to 10 years. So these kinds of things happen often enough that very often the response from markets tends to be somewhat muted. Now that could change if the crisis escalates, if we start to see movement from, say, Hezbollah on uh, Israel's northern border, if we start to see increase in tensions between Israel and Iran, which of course is a major backer of Hamas, the group in Gaza. So there are escalatory risks here that could impact broader markets, and we could start to see a larger market uh, uh, shift. But right now, markets are doing what they tend to do when there's violence in the Middle East, which is to say, we've seen this before. We know how this is going to play out. This isn't going to impact our day to day. Now, when you say escalation, is that the larger worry here if we're looking from the perspective of the global economy? Absolutely. I mean, there are escalatory risks here. Right. The attack, uh, the Hamas attack against Israel was a historic attack. Over a thousand Israelis dead. Uh, There's uh, upwards of 100 hostages being held by Hamas. Uh, The Israeli reaction has been uh, large scale. This is, you know, one of the worst crises Israel has faced 
in, uh, in over a decade. And markets are watching very closely for escalatory risks, for the possibility that the conflict expands. They're watching the actions of the United States very closely. The U.S., of course, has indicated very strong support for Israel. President Biden gave a, a relatively impassioned address a number of days ago where he uh, expressed strong U.S. support for Israel. The U.S. has moved uh, two aircraft carrier groups into the eastern Mediterranean to support Israel. But the U.S. also does seem to be focused on containing the crisis and discouraging additional escalation. That doesn't mean that escalation might not happen. Uh, but right now, the risk of this crisis blowing up into something bigger that could impact markets is relatively low. Well, when you look at other countries in the region, what is, as, as you think about, okay, escalation, what would be really bad and, and, and what, would be, what, we, what would be grave here? Who, who are the actors here that you're watching? So I'm watching Hezbollah specifically. Hezbollah is a, you know, a large uh, militia political group um, located in southern Lebanon that has a long history of conflict with Israel. Uh, Hezbollah is also a group that receives considerable support from Iran. Like Hamas, it's something of an Iranian uh, client or a proxy, if you like. And there has been quite a lot of skirmishes and, and low-level violence on the northern Israeli border. If Hezbollah were to uh, expand its uh, activities and were to involve itself in the crisis, that could suggest a broader escalation. The way that affects markets is, again, primarily directed at oil. Uh, Iran is a major oil producer. It's been uh, expanding its oil exports over the last year. Um, right now, it's producing and exporting more oil than it has uh, in five years since sanctions were imposed. And so the escalatory risk would really be directed at Iranian oil. If the United States or Israel decides that it, they want to crack down on Iran in order to reduce its support for Hamas and Hezbollah, they may try to go after Iranian oil exports. Now, that's difficult to do, and there are a number of knock-on effects, um, but that would be the key escalatory risk here as far as markets are concerned. That would have upward pressure on oil prices, and it would start to ripple out to a broader market impact. If we step back from, from what's happening in, in Israel, I mean, we have a, a war there now. We have a war in Ukraine. If you look to China, it's building up its, its military. There's all these rumblings about what might happen with Taiwan. It, it feels like there's a lot of uncertainty in the world right now, Greg. How does that uncertainty, you know, affect what's happening in, in the broader economy? Absolutely. I think there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty. You know, we've seen a historic bout of inflation over the last few years. We've seen an increase in uh, federal interest rates. Um, you know, we've seen some of the world's largest econ economies start to stutter a little bit. You know, there are problems in the EU. Uh, China is going through uh, something of an economic crisis, although precisely the manner in which that crisis will play out is still a little bit unclear. Um, so, you know, as we move forward, these volatile events, these crises, these international crises, they're going to keep happening. I mean, it's kind of the nature of geopolitics that you're going to have a crisis somewhere. Uh, if not a crisis in the Middle East, then the crisis in the Caucasus between Azerbaijan and Armenia. Uh, the war in Ukraine continues, right, and doesn't look like it's going to be resolved anytime soon. Um, there was a disruption in natural gas supply, you know, in Scandinavia. That's been happening over the last few days. It hasn't been getting quite the attention that it deserves, but it's something else worth, worth noting. Um, so, I mean, that's a long answer uh, to a question that really comes down to volatility from geopolitical events is there, is always going to be there. And I think it's important to focus, to continue to focus on fundamentals, to continue to focus on these larger questions of economic growth, uh, to continue to look at what's happening in China, which is, you know, probably the most important single economy in the world right now, as far as the ripple effects to the rest of the global economy. And right now, there are lots of questions and not many answers 
as to what 2024 will look like. In the longer term, do do you see countries like the U.S., countries like Canada responding in any kind of ways to to this kind of less stable world? I think the United States generally tries to figure out ways to contain crises when they happen, particularly specifically because it's worried about broader risks and broader impacts, not just to markets, but to national security. So the interest right now is to try to keep the crisis in Israel contained and to try to prevent the kinds of escalatory risks that I mentioned. And I mentioned that the United States might feel compelled to crack down on Iran oil exports to punish Iran for its support for Hamas. I actually don't think that's something that the White House particularly wants to do. They don't want to take action that will increase oil prices. They don't want to take action that will cause these kinds of global economic ripple effects. Um, So what the United States and Canada and the rest of the G7 countries, I think, are focused on, uh, particularly in the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, are the risks that come from uh, major disruptions to energy supply, major disruptions to uh, global economic relationships. And they're going to approach crises like these with those, you know, with those recent events in mind, right? They're going to try to contain crises as they pop up. Um, But it's very difficult to do that at times, particularly for a crisis like this in Israel, where there are so many involved actors, where you just, you don't have just the Israelis and the Palestinians, you have Iran, you have Hezbollah and Lebanon, you have Saudi Arabia, you have the United States, you have China. I mean, China is sitting on the sidelines right now, but China has uh, offered to mediate an Israel-Palestine agreement. China has been expanding its relationships with uh, both Saudi Arabia uh, and Iran, though to a somewhat lesser extent. China wants to be more of a Middle East uh, player. Um, So you might start to see a, a more engaged role from China if this crisis continues. So I think, you know, the major powers of the world will be trying to mitigate the volatility from these kinds of geopolitical uh, events. Uh, But it still needs to be said that volatility can be difficult to contain. Uh, it, It can play out in a variety of unexpected ways. And it's not always easy to contain uh, escalatory impacts, particularly when crises are moving at the kind of speed that we've seen this crisis in Israel move. You know, as, as countries try to contain that kind of volatility, it also seems like one of the things we've seen over the last number of years is maybe more trade protectionism, more countries deciding to look inward in, in a less stable world. I wonder if if these kinds of events, if you think um, they're going to sort of, you know, continue some of, of what we've seen there. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely worth flagging. You know, I think um, for countries like the United States, like Canada, like the EU, um, uh, China as well, right, trying to mitigate the impact of geopolitical events and volatility uh, very often seems to play out in terms of things like industrial policy and trade policy and in attempts to encourage forms of resource nationalism or bringing investment home or building up domestic manufacturing capacity. You're seeing that play out in things like uh, battery manufacturing or chip manufacturing, right? The United States is now actively trying to decouple from China and increase its ability to produce the kinds of things that it's currently buying from China. I mean, that's a very clear move uh, in terms of economic and industrial policy that's being driven largely, I would say, by national security concerns and concerns about containing uh, geopolitical risk. Um, And, you know, other countries are taking similar moves. In the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the EU has been trying to move as quickly as it can away from dependence on Russian energy. Uh, from From a purely geographic point of view, Russia continues to be the EU's best energy supplier. 
as it has been for decades. But because of these geopolitical events and because of concerns about containing volatility, the EU is moving to other sources of supply. Uh, so I do think we've seen responses from, from major states to these sources of volatility, to these geopolitical drivers that are evolving in ways that look a little bit more protectionist. And I'm not totally sure if that's a trend we're going to see change anytime soon. Well, thanks for taking us through all that, Greg. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Gregory Brew is an author and analyst at the Eurasia Group. His latest book is The Struggle for Iran, Oil, Autocracy, and the Cold War. The Cost of Living is based in Calgary. The show is produced by Danielle Nerman, Ellis Cho, and Jennifer Keene, with help from Caroline Ferris. Our executive producer is Tracy Johnson. I'm Paul Habershrude. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.